Welcome to the fourth episode of Humans of Haas. Humans of Haas is a podcast brought to you by full-time MBA students at Berkeley Haas. Each episode explores a new topic and brings you different perspectives on it from our classmates. The idea of an Asian American experience seemed paradoxical to me when I first came across it as an Indian-born American. How can people whose ancestors or extended family come from Karachi or Kunming or Kobe share very much at all? And yet, talk to an Indonesian American or a Nepali American or a Korean American, and there's no denying a spark of shared experience in making a life here, forged in part by the beliefs and expectations imposed on them by all of the other people who call America home. Census estimates from 2015 reveal that Asian Americans are about 6% of the U.S. population and are one of the fastest growing groups. Immigration actually started in earnest in the mid-19th century, but was banned for much of the early part of the 20th century due to the perceived threat of yellow peril, and was liberalized again only beginning in the 1960s. Around that time, we started to hear this idea of the model minority, partly based on statistics that showed Asian Americans to have higher average rates of college education or household income than other aggregate groups in America. The darker side of this is the implication that other minority groups aren't a model for U.S. society, and the masking of the struggles of many communities of Asian Americans who do not conform to the image of an upper-middle-class professional or small business owner. Interwoven with these statistics and generalizations are the stories of individuals and their families with unique and complex struggles and triumphs, and from those struggles and those triumphs, the creation of a multifaceted and complex identity. Today we'll hear from four students in three acts, Mituan Tran, Tiffany Lee, Stan Howe, and Howard O, plus myself, Mithil Bhad. We'll hear a bit about what it means to be Asian American and what that categorization even means to us at all. This is Mituan Tran, MBA, MPH, 2016. Mai Fuan? Mai Chuan? It sounds like the name of a restaurant. How do you say it anyway? That's what my Uber driver just told me. Actually, it's just my name, and it's Mituan. A lot of people make assumptions about me because of my name. They think I'm a foreigner, even when I was born and raised in California. Sometimes they're surprised at what great English I have. My parents are refugees who fled Vietnam after the war. They named me Mi Tuan after a river in the Mekong Delta in the south where my dad is from and where his parents lived and their parents and their parents and their parents. My name in Vietnamese is Mi Tuan. My parents gave me my name so that I would never forget where I came from. They knew it would be hard for me, but they wanted me to know that I was Vietnamese on the inside. And I think they really wanted Americans to know that I was Vietnamese on the outside. They knew it would be a little harder for people to figure out, but they had faith that my dual identities could coexist in their new home. My name is the biggest outward expression that I've lived my entire life with my feet in two worlds. Sometimes it comes together seamlessly, like at my sixth birthday party when my mom served egg rolls and pizza, but sometimes it didn't work out like when I wasn't allowed to go see She's All That because there was kissing in the trailer. Sometimes it looks like this. At home, I'm a kid who cannot push back on my parents. My dad used to make us swim 40 laps in a pool every single day just for discipline, and it didn't matter that we were crying or if it was raining or storming. He got us math books that were two grades above our level and quizzed us every single night. 
I think he felt like math was our ticket to always staying in the middle class and being successful. My mom is a boat person who fled Vietnam's communist government when she was 23. And even though she took this major risk in her life, she always cautioned us to go for the most stable version of our lives that we could have in the US. Don't take risks, study math and science, get good grades and just go to medical school. The only acceptable career choices for me was to be an engineer like my parents or a doctor like my other relatives. So when I went to college and started taking biology courses, I really hated them, and this terrified me. If I wasn't going to go to medical school, what was I going to do? I tried really, really, really hard to like my chemistry courses, but I just couldn't pretend any further. My friends saw how much in distress I was, and they just said, why don't you just tell your parents to back off? But I really couldn't. It made me sad that some of my friends really could not understand my experience or just how difficult it would actually be. During college, I really loved writing and interviewing people, and so I decided to become a journalist. When I told my parents, they were really worried for me. They asked me, what is it that you're going to do? How are you going to get there? What will your life look like? And I couldn't answer them because I didn't know the answers to these questions myself and I told them that they just had to have faith that I would figure it out. I have to remind myself to be empathetic that my parents had no conception of what it's like to grow up in the US or what a different future could look like. In giving me my name, my parents signify that they have faith that you can be Vietnamese and you can be American, both at the same time. And after 30 years of living, I'm still figuring out exactly what that means. I don't have the privilege of people assuming entirely positive things about me when they only see what I look like or when they, they see my name come across a resume. To even have to explain that I don't feel 100% accepted or not questioned is a hard thing to say or admit. Who doesn't want to fit in entirely? It's not like I feel like an outsider all the time. There's no bright flashing light announcing my outsider status, but just when I feel like I can ease and into an entire and wholehearted sense of belonging, it hits me a little, like a paper cut. Or I have the sense that because of my name or because of how I look, people may just view me in a different way. To me, that's the Asian American experience. It's having this double agent life and having this tension run in parallel the entire time. It's to simultaneously coexist as part of the in-group and the out-group. Perhaps the easiest way to signify being in the in-group and to be quote unquote, completely American would be for me to change my name. Why make it harder on myself? I have to admit it would be enticing. But I truly and deeply want to have the same faith that my parents have, that I am fiercely Vietnamese and I am fiercely American and that I am fiercely Asian American. Hey Howard, hey Stan, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having us, Mitchell. Yeah, great to be here. Cool. So I think one of the things that I've always kind of puzzled with is what does it even mean to be Asian American? I think, you know, when we even came up with this idea with Hadi, the idea of including South Asians, so Indians, Pakistanis, Bangladeshis in this was, wasn't even a given. What do you guys think about what it means to be Asian in the U.S.? I think that's an interesting question that I've never really thought about too much before because... I guess I've always just kind of taken it more as a given. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, to me, it probably just comes from 
if I had to come up with a definition, it'd be an American whose ancestry hails from the continent of Asia. Yeah, I think I would take like a very U.S. Census Bureau straight up definition, which right. is more geography. Um, but I think on another hand, it's this idea from me of, of being American, but then not at the same time. It's because of all the hyphenation, hmm. even in the term of itself. So what has that been like? So say, Howard, when you were growing up, what did you identify as Asian American? Were you thinking of yourself as you know, Chinese American? Like, how did you, what did you even think of? So I come from an immigrant family. Yeah. I came here when I was two. And I've always identified myself as Chinese. Mm-hmm. And I don't think the American part really came in until I went to school. Um, specifically, probably not until college. Mm. Uh, I grew up outside of D.C. in Northern Virginia. It's a very diverse community and also tons of immigrants. Uh, everybody sort of identified with the country where their parents were from. Um, and it wasn't really until college where I met this whole other side of America. And, it, and it's funny saying that now, given yeah, recent events. <laughs> um, but I realized that my upbringing was not like a lot of the other people I met in college. I don't know, Stan, if that was your kind of your experience. Yeah, I think I think similar. Um, you know, so I, my family's Chinese. I was born in China. I moved here when I was four, um, and I predominantly grew up. I grew up in the Midwest, in the state of Michigan, where there are very, very few Asians. I don't think there was. I went to school with a single other Asian person until maybe like seventh grade. Um, so for me. I don't think I ever thought of myself as Asian American. I thought of myself as Asian while I was at home and then American when I was at school or, you know, in public. Um, so it was kind of like a dual identity. And it wasn't, again, similar to Howard when I got to college and was exposed to more Asian Americans and there being kind of an Asian American culture as kind of this third entity that um, I started having those thoughts in my head for like the first time of, oh, what does this identity actually mean and what does it entail? Did you join any of those Asian clubs at school? That's a really good question. Um, I actually did not. Um, and I think part of that, a large part of that probably did have to do with the fact that um, I kind of had this bipolar identity growing up to that point. And a big part of that identity was when I wasn't at school, it was basically trying to be as un-Asian as possible because no one else was around me was it uh, was Asian and so by the time I got into college it was I did not join Asian American Danny groups because subconsciously throughout my life like that had been like don't do that kind of stuff. So, like, what it, so I, I, I'm kind of curious about this. What is it? What did it mean in your say in your middle school um, to be Asian? Like what did you not do or what did you kind of distance yourself from? Yeah. So I think like. Even before middle school, for example, I think like the one of the strongest memories for me was um, going to L. And you know, I'm probably not the only Asian American to have this have this experience. I'm sure I'm not, but going to school like the first day of school in kindergarten, and my parents had packed me Chinese food for lunch, and then you go to lunch, you open it up, and every single kid around you is like, "Ew, what is that? Like that's so weird. It smells gross." And so, like, at such a young age, I mean, I think that was, like, a memory that I'll never forget. And I think that was kind of, like, the first instance of me being, like, oh, it's, like, maybe not okay to be, to act fully Asian or, like, bring that side of my life into, like, school or just, like, my non-home life. 
Yeah, I remember distinctly asking my mom at Safeway or at the grocery store growing up to buy me Lunchables because every kid at school had Lunchables in, in elementary school. And she was like, absolutely not. We're not buying that. <laughs> you're you're going to get your sticky rice and you're going to bring that to school. <laughs> so I guess once you guys got to college, how did you relate to other Asian Americans? Or maybe you didn't. Yeah, I mean, I would say I didn't. Um, honestly, it has not been... It's only been since this past year moving out to California for the first time, and especially here in Berkeley, which is like 45% plus Asian, that um, my sense of in my own Asian American identity has really started to blossom a bit more. Interesting. I think, yeah, for me, it was a little bit, it's a bit different, I think, because I came um, after living in the U.S. in middle school, I actually went and lived in India in high school and then came back as an international student in college. And I think it was different, too, because when I came back to the U.S. for college, I noticed there were lots of Indian Americans at my undergrad university who were joining groups, joining dance groups, and there was an acapella group that was sort of Indian fusion. And I sort of was confused by it. I didn't really understand what that meant because I knew people in India who sang and I knew people who, you know, maybe were training classical dance, but there wasn't this idea that, oh, we should all, now that we're in college, join this group together. And so for me, it was I gravitated away from that also, like you said, Stan, and then slowly made inroads into it and I think made friends independently who had then introduced me to this idea of like Bollywood dance as a Indian American experience, but it was very different from what I'd ever had at home or, or growing up. You know, I know everyone's family shapes who they are, but I guess for you guys, how do you think of your family's you know, beliefs or values or whatever uh, whatever was said or taught at home, how does that, how's that influenced who you are today? Yeah, I, I think for me, um, we could start on the topic of academic expectations because I think when we're talking about the Asian American experience, that's always such a large part of it. Um, for me, I, I guess, you know, I have a slightly weird experience in that, in, in that area and that like, I didn't really have, um, tiger parents by, um, by any stretch of the imagination, my parents are always pretty hands-off. Um, but at the same time, I think part of that was because the expectations themselves had been drilled into me from such a young age that my parents felt like, you know, by the time I was even just like seven or eight, they didn't, they didn't need to like um, oversee my every action anymore. Um, so yeah, I mean, for, so for example, just to give us a bit of background. So um, my grandpa was like the patriarch of our family um, he had one son out of his five kids and I'm my dad's only son. And I'm also like his second oldest grandkid. So, um, with Asian cultures being more patriarchal, you could kind of imagine kind of the expectations that my parents and my family had for me. So, you know, I definitely felt that growing up. Um, and I felt the need to be a good role model for my sister and my younger cousins. I felt the need to, um, you know, excel academically um, and get into college and, you know, kind of follow the, the become be a, follow the mo model minority myth. Yeah, I think I can relate to that, too. So I'm also the oldest in my family, also the only son. Uh, my dad was in a family of five sons. Um, and sometimes I, I wished growing up that I had an older brother so that I'll, I didn't have all the responsibility of, like, carrying the family name or, like, doing very well and um, just, yeah, being that, that role model for my little sister, for example. Uh, so I think growing up, I've always had this really immense weight of responsibility. Like I couldn't mess up. And if I did, I, I wouldn't have anybody there to catch me. 
although I feel like I have a huge family and family is really important, but it was just sense of like from the very early age, like you're responsible for yourself. And is that feeling, does that, has that lessened over time? Do you still feel that way? You know, you're obviously both at a top ranked MBA program. Clearly there's some level of uh, following a, a conventionally successful path, but how do you guys kind of have those feelings today or, or not? I think I still have a lot of the same feelings. Um, I'm not sure I really feel it from my family anymore. It's just been, been so internalized over the course of my life that um, like what I feel is the same, but the source is just different. Yeah, for me, it, I, I think it's definitely lessened over time as well. Um, I think my parents are starting to realize that, uh, you know, I'm maybe not going to be taking care of them from, like up until they're like, you know, in their 80s and that they need to start taking care of themselves. Um, actually, one really funny thing just happened. Uh, so over the summer, my parents took this like really elaborate cruise to, to Canada and they were like in Vancouver or whatever. And uh, they actually booked the entire thing by themselves from, from, from beginning to end. They found their own tickets, they found their own rooms, they didn't call me once, I was in Shanghai. And I got back, I was like, oh my gosh, you guys can actually live without me. And it was just like this moment of like, oh yes, I don't need to be there for you. And it was like, extremely relieving. That's awesome. How do you think these attitudes or beliefs or behaviors, however you want to think about this, um, have influenced your life in the workplace? So when I first started out in consulting, uh, I was definitely coached. And the advice that I was given was, you know, in meetings, you really need to speak up because you're, you're paid to have an opinion. And when you don't speak up, you're not valued. And that came up and again, again and again um, during performance evaluations, where for the first time in my life, I felt so uncomfortable talking about myself and talking about my accomplishments um, because that's not how I was raised. Uh, you know, when we talk about accomplishments, it's like the group's accomplishment or it's like the family's accomplishment. Um, it's because of, you know, uh, aunts and uncles and cousins who like helped you or like the entire team helped you. And, for the, and so in a corporate setting, when you really have to amp up your own effort and your own uh, achievements, that was really at odds with the value of like humility that I was taught growing up. One of the, I think, perceptions of Asian Americans might be that they're less willing to speak out. Howard, what do you think about that? How does... Have you seen that in the workplace? Do you think it's, is it actually coming from a place of, uh, is, it, is it an outside perception or is it more of like internal? I think it's an internal thing as well. Um, I think Asian Americans are sort of known as this group that doesn't want to rock the boat. And I think it has to do with the fact with the, you know, in the history of Asian Americans, we've done very well, just sort of heads down, working hard, um, not drawing too much attention to ourselves and then being able to carve a path out for success. And as a result, I think we've inherited this role where speaking out, I think, is too much of a risk. And the risk is, is identifying, and identifying yourself as someone who's, not, who's completely different. And I think the idea of being attacked on being foreign is a big vulnerability that a lot of Asian Americans think about. Yeah, I know um, growing up in my family, the most important thing was always to be able to grow up and 
find steady work and make comfortable living. You know, economic success was kind of always the highest priority and anything that would put that um, into jeopardy, you know, you just didn't do it. And I think one thing that falls under in, into that bucket that comes to mind is um, speaking out on social issues um, and becoming social socially active. Um, I think, you know, Asian Americans, Asian American community currently and historically has, you know, like Howard said, alluded to, um, stayed in the background on a lot of those issues because it brings risk. You don't, you know, we're already doing fine enough for ourselves. Why take that additional risk and put everything that we've worked so hard to get um, into jeopardy? Um, and I think, you know, I think, I think one, there's that, at, at, at this point in our lives, I think one, there's, there's a lot of that upbringing that still probably resonates with a lot of us. But then I think the other part too is that when you're not, when your family just doesn't talk about those things growing up, at least this is the case for me, you just don't really grow up with vocabulary to be able to engage in those conversations and talk about those issues. So then once you get to this point, maybe you don't feel prepared and that you should just stay, stay in, the, in the background. Yeah, that's really interesting. I have kind of a slightly different perspective. So I think in my family, there are a lot of strong opinions about politics, for example, or even social issues. I remember my mom being very early on um, talking about gay marriage and how that was something that was really important because we had some close family friends who were gay. And I think that you're so right that what you hear in the house or what you don't hear in the house, I think influences your later on your ability to kind of engage on these issues. And I think, you know, we have seen that there are more Indian Americans who are involved in politics, for example, in the U.S. than East Asian Americans. And I think part of that, maybe it's cultural, maybe it's just this matter of what you're exposed to at an early age. And actually, I think that's going to change in the next generation. Um, I think as we're seeing more role models in politics, that more people are going to be want to want to be engaged. Um, yeah. I think, at least us when we were growing up, there weren't that many Asian Americans um, in in the White House and Congress and et cetera. And I think now, um, with recent elections, there's uh, you know so many different examples of um, Asian Americans doing very well in politics. Yeah, I think one recent example um, that just came to mind is over the summer. I'm not sure if you guys saw, but um, a bunch of Asian Americans across the country put together this Google Doc on how to speak to your parents about Black Lives Matter. Yes. Wow. And I thought that was just awesome and such a good sign of you know, the Asian community, uh, Asian American community moving in the right direction. It was a small hole, very clean. Thin veins spidered around it, but the rest of the glass was pristinely intact. My parents guessed it must have been from the bullet of a BB gun. We carefully taped saran wrap onto the glass to prevent the wind from coming in. My name is Tiffany Lee, and I'm a first year at Haas. I grew up in middle-class suburbs about an hour outside New York City. Two-story homes, green lawns, good public school systems. As a kid, I had no concept that racism could apply to me. And yet, at the same time, I had gotten used to seeing eggs sliding down my window. 
I had gotten used to the sound of rocks being thrown against the side of my house, snowballs hitting our front door. Ding dong ditch. We had to keep replacing our mailbox because kids would put fireworks in it and blow it up. I had gotten used to hiding in the dark, just underneath the windowsill. I'm an American. I was born to Taiwanese immigrants. You have to find a way to survive. I was told over and over again my entire life. Immigrant families, we are survivors. In a sense, the whole is clean, the rest of us intact. I laid low and had made apologies for the way I looked, for my parents' accents, for my unexpected answers to prying questions. In the name of survival, I was conditioned to ignore the many different ways strangers, acquaintances, and even friends made me feel like America wasn't my home. Despite being born in this country and having a U.S. passport. I didn't feel like I was an American until I was a full-grown adult, and I never talked about it. No one talked about it. You have to find a way to survive. When I got older, I found out where this came from. Though my parents were from Taiwan, my grandparents were of the landlord class in China. In the mid 1900s, a civil war broke out in China. And Mao Zedong and the Communist Party won. At that time, Mao established land reform. As part of his anti-capitalist campaign, there was a policy to select landlords in virtually every village for public execution. So, at mass meetings organized by the Communist Party, landlords were beaten to death, as land was taken from them and given to poorer peasants. That included most of my dad's family, and so you see, our house can take a few rocks, a few exploding mailboxes. But the difference between me and my family is, I don't think you can just tape up saran wrap over the problem and move on. To ignore it like it's not there, to just adapt. After all of these years in a culture of self-preservation. I know I can and I should do more than just survive. That's where I was originally going to leave this story. I had spent my entire career working in education and wanting to improve the U.S. education system, while business school was my first step in doing something selfish, just for me to build skills so I can eventually take a leadership role in social justice. In the past few weeks since the election results, many people have expressed to me their shock at the America we live in. My response: This has always been the America I've lived in. In a way, we've come full circle. I called my parents after November eighth, and I told them not to stray too far from home, or for either of them to go to any remote gas stations alone. I said, "Dad, just make sure you survive."
Intuition from starlit vision. 